Welcome to Interchange, I'm Doug Storm. Today's show, Metaphors of Correction, explores the question, can science make sense of life? Our music throughout is from the Flaming Lips, June 1999 U.S. release, The Soft Bulletin. We'll open with What is the Light? Subtitled, An Untested Hypothesis Suggesting that the Chemical in Our Brains, by which we are able to experience the sensation of being in love, is the same chemical that caused the Big Bang that was the birth of the accelerating universe. Let's begin with Emerson's 1870 lecture, The Natural History of the Intellect. Quote, What is life but the angle of vision? A man is measured by the angle at which he looks at objects. What is life but what a man is thinking of all day? This is his fate and his employer. Knowing is the measure of the man. By how much we know, so much we are. The laws and powers of the intellect have, however, a stupendous peculiarity of being at once observers and observed so that it is difficult to hold them fast as objects of examination or hinder them from turning the professor out of his chair. The wonder of the science of intellect is that the substance with which we deal is of that subtle and active quality, that it intoxicates all who approach it." About that angle of vision, Fifty years on from Emerson's lecture, we have F. Scott Fitzgerald's mouthpiece, Nick Carraway, offering that life is much more successfully looked at from a single window. After all, it is the looking that is in question. But what about that scientific intoxication? When we consider the overweening ambition of some of those who practice science, distinct from those who observe and describe nature, I can't help but think of the folk tales of the golem, a creature formed of clay and animated, often by writing a word of power on its forehead, or writing the word on paper and then placing that paper in its mouth. The creature is made to serve by the word. The existence of a golem is at best a mixed blessing. While in many depictions, golems are inherently perfectly obedient, in its earliest known modern telling sometime in the 17th century, the golem of Kelm became enormous and, well, let's say, uncooperative. Today's show focuses on biology's metaphors of control and how these are deployed to describe processes that are laughably uncontrollable. My guest is Sheila Jasanoff, Fortzheimer Professor of Science and Technology Studies at the Harvard Kennedy School. She's the author or editor of more than 15 books, including The Fifth Branch, Science at the Bar, Designs on Nature, and The Ethics of Invention. Her work explores the role of science and technology in the law, politics, and policy of modern democracies. Her most recent book is Can Science Make Sense of Life? Just out from Polity. Though Jasanoff focuses on biology in her book, she begins with the renowned physicist Erwin Schrodinger and his classic work, What is Life?, a book based on a course of public lectures delivered by Schrodinger in February 1943. And now, Metaphors of Correction with Sheila Jasanoff on Interchange on WFHB. Sheila, 
Sheila Jasanoff, thank you so much for joining me on Interchange. It's my pleasure. Uh, so your new book uh, from Polity, Can Science Make Sense of Life, begins with uh, a, a very famous book by a physicist, uh, What is Life? Uh, so why do you start there? Well, I started there because there's a, a way in which uh, our thinking about life has undergone a big transformation in the 20th century. We've moved uh, to a very physicalist understanding of what life is all about. And Schrodinger's book, What is Life, is often taken as the inspirational starting point for a new generation generation of molecular biologists who uh, tried to boil life down to its fundamental particulars. And so it seemed to me historically a good place to start the book. Does it matter that this was a physicist? Schrodinger's book absolutely matters because it was written by a physicist and yet tackling biological problems. So it was a step away from physics uh, normally concerning itself with inanimate things and an attempt to understand living organisms from the standpoint of fundamental laws like the ones that govern the atom. One of my uh, relevant uh, areas of training is in linguistics. And you may know that in the 50s and 60s, Noam Chomsky came up with a theory of how language works uh, that began with a very similar kind of inquiry. How is it that we human beings are born Uh, not speaking any language, and yet acquire these uh, very complicated possibilities for generating infinite numbers of sentences in a wide variety of languages. And therefore, there must be a fundamental starting point in the mind uh, that allows us to become proficient and prolific in this uh, way that we consider uh, linguistic variety to be. So, when when I looked at Schrodinger's book the first time, I thought, hmm, here is a an inspirational moment for biology that reads somewhat the same way. How is it possible for inanimate matter to combine together in ways that generate this incredible proliferation so that you, you can be a bird or a human and you can diversify into all kinds of sizes, shapes, and forms. And surely there must be some fundamental law that begins to explain all of it. So I think that's a physicist's imagination being brought to the decoding of life. And it is something that has served as uh, as really a wayfinder, a kind of inspirational pathway for biologists who keep wanting to get down to that set of basics from which we can then move outward and regulate uh, very complicated organismic manifestations. But they all begin with the basics. Mm. I guess you're right that that's a physics eye view of life as a code script. Uh, Exactly. That code script uh, term was one that Schrodinger himself used. And of course, that's before the discovery of DNA, because it it was in the 30s, whereas 1953 is the year that the the structure of DNA is unraveled. And from that point onward, we keep saying the code, and Mm -hmm. that is the code of life. Yeah, we we get stuck in metaphors. Absolutely. But the metaphors, as I also argue in the book, are quite powerful, because the metaphors shape our way of thinking 
and we think we've unraveled things with a code. And so all the things that codes do and that we've associated with the word code then start getting applied to biological matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, the big question here, I think, that you focus on as well is, you know, the way we ask this question, right? what is life or what is life for, is an uh, is a, a, a question you focus on throughout the book as well. This, of course, brings use value into the equation and, and perhaps uh, begs us to ask, you know, Rachel Carson's question, who has the right to decide these questions also? So, um, so, uh, so uh, again, uh, your book it seems, as you said already, primarily concerned, I think, with biology. And uh, should we separate out that as a, as part of the? If we were to change the title, can it be? Can biology make sense of life? Uh, you, the title is can science is uh, is it that biology is subsuming all these sciences? Well, thanks for asking the question. There's, uh, of course, a, a, a reason behind titles. And to some extent, this book was intended as part of a series of books that Polity Press is publishing, and they uh, usually have science in the title, and more of they're all supposed to be in the form of a question mark. Um, but in a sense, I think that the kinds of issues I raise are not limited to biology. Uh, an equivalent set of things is happening today in information science and artificial intelligence and machine learning. That is another frontier in which we are decoding parts of the way in which human consciousness operates. Uh, so I think that um, although the examples would be different and the exposition would be somewhat different, um, today's sciences and technologies uh, are uh, encroaching on the definition of life from multiple directions and not just from biology. So you start out with how science moves from a, a kind of naturalist perspective or the, it's perhaps limited by its technologies at the time, right? For it moves from naturalism or naturalists to uh, – it moves into the laboratory. You call this sort of moving from the eye to the lens from Darwin and Lamarck and Mendel to Watson and Crick and our DNA, et cetera. Uh, so is, is it as essential that the technologies change as much as like – I guess it's a kind of chicken egg, a chicken and egg question I'm asking, right? As the technologies change, science and its questions or science and its power, science and its idea of what it can do changes. Yes, that's very much the case that, uh, that how we look at things and what we think we see are intimately related. And, um, but I'd like to put it in a way that is not so deterministic. I mean, that is, I don't think, uh, the science comes first in a sense, or the technology comes first, and then it simply constricts what we do. I think it's a part of a more organic or synthetic discovery process in which, uh, human inquisitiveness or curiosity uh, leads us to start asking certain kinds of questions, and then we pick up the things to hand and, and to some degree transform them. I mean, so lenses or their precursors were around certainly before the microscope, and then certainly the plain ordinary microscope was around before the electron microscope. So when uh, we uh, discover a new way of looking, then that gets applied to older problems and we suddenly find ourselves thinking of it um, from a different angle and with a different perspective. Uh, so for instance, in ecology, people have written about the transformation of the field sciences through our capacity now to survey the earth, partly from the air and partly from even higher up. 
through satellite imaging. So ecology has become a different field as a result of technologies being available like remote sensing. But it's not that the fundamental questions are necessarily different. They're now being asked with the aid of uh, different um, capabilities, capabilities that allow us to repose old questions to some degree. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. My guest is Harvard Kennedy School Professor of Science and Technology Studies, Sheila Jasanoff, whose new book, Can Science Make Sense of Life?, asks, how far should the capacity to manipulate what life is at the molecular level authorize science to define what life is for? Jasanoff looks at flashpoints in law, politics, ethics, and culture to argue that science's promises of perfectibility have gone too far. They lifted up the sun there's a, a tension between what the technology um, allows you to do or can do or sometimes perhaps forces you to do, you know, changes changes your attention, changes your uh, mode of operation. And that technology then does sort of frame different questions from the technology point of view. Well, I think that there's a lot of truth to that, that once we put something into a material object like a technology, I mean, of course, in my line of thought, I don't think of technologies as being only material, but let's stick mm-hmm. to the ones that are material to some extent. Mm-hmm. They put certain constraints on us, uh, you know, like think of the zebra stripe on a road that says pedestrians have right of way. I mean, it's just some paint put onto some usually black surface, but it affects all sorts of expectations. It affects a driver's expectations about where uh, one needs to be careful about driving and one sees the zebra stripe coming up and hopefully it is painted with luminous paint, which is another technology, and then one expects to see somebody. There was a tragic accident involving an autonomous vehicle not long ago in Arizona, and one of the reasons that people gave for why the autonomous vehicle, the self-driving car, had not noticed, quote-unquote, the pedestrian was that it was a case of jaywalking. It was not at a demarcated, signaled crossing that the car would have been programmed to think about, if you want to say that, <laughs> uh, in a different kind of way. Uh, so, you know, I, I do think technologies in that sense constrain us. I guess one of the things I would like to say is that it's not technology in the sense of a black box that's sitting there doing something. It's an entire technological system. Mm-hmm. And the, the traffic light and the intersection and the zebra stripe. And that illustrates my point. I mean, it's not just some paint. It's paint that is in particular shapes and colors and located in a certain way. And it's human behavior that has been conditioned to behave in that way. Mm. So you give a child, I mean, if you hand a child a chopstick or a scarf, you will find that the child does things with those things that you might never be thinking of. Uh, And I've seen that with my own children, and I've seen that with my grandchild, that there is a spirit of play uh, that is not constrained by our expectations of what the material delivers, um, but by some sense of the world and the matter in it that could be turned around and flipped and, you know, used to perform different kinds of actions. 
Hmm. Well, uh, maybe it's a naivete in myself. You know, there's a there's a perspective, I suppose, from from the vantage point of imagining the 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 signpost that you were speaking of, the way in which we read signs, the signs that are made via technologies, as you as your uh, example offered, uh, and the idea of uh, your eco uh, your ecology example, right, which which sort of shifts the entirety of that that I view, right. So uh, I guess. Partly, it's not to parse it too finely. I'm not trying to necessarily do that. Uh, I do understand the ways in which, as we approach new technologies, if we're not conditioned by them already, we might have new ways to use them. But there is obviously a conditioning mode and even a conditioning purpose in much of what is uh, current and again, when I say technologies, I suppose I mostly mean uh, things like media technologies, but also things that just are uh, scripted within the computer environment. I mean, I guess at some point one has to step back and ask why one is parsing and not just <laughs> what one is parsing sure. and to what degree of detail, right? I would like to shift gears yeah, a sure. little bit in answering you to saying that that. Um, uh, at some point, one becomes concerned about uh, not so much what does the instrument allow, but how and why are people mm-hmm. using particular instrumentalities. So with the ecology example, for instance, hand in hand with a change of perspective goes a change in one's sense of what one can control. Mm-hmm. I mean, so you ecology, instead of being just the very localized phenomena, I mean, in a sense, Mendel was doing ecology when he was breeding his little plants and putting them in plots. And I visited his garden in Brno because I just wanted to see that physical space. And it's it's cloistered. I mean, literally, of course, it's cloistered because he was a monk. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're looking at satellite imaging, you can uh, suddenly uh, see a con- across continents and indeed circle the entire world. And uh, NASA in America has uh, made a, a series of films talking about ecological changes that, that are global and then they compress the time using those computing capabilities you talked about so that in the space of a couple of minutes you can see what current predictions say will happen to, for instance, forested land cover across the entire world in a short space of time. Now, clearly, the technological capabilities of both computing and vantage point give us the data with which we're doing that. But that we choose to do it, that we suddenly change our predictive horizon from being, say, a farming season this year, this monsoon, to hundreds of years collapsed into a couple of minutes. That alters our sense of who we are, what we can control, what our predictive horizons are. And those things have proved to be extremely important in the late 20th century understandings of the what is life for. Mm. The uh, control element in particular is a, is a key issue throughout the book. Who who controls and how how they control this particular uh, instrumentalizing of these 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 new sciences. Yes, absolutely. And who controls is um, totally tied up with what should we be controlling for. Mm. One of the areas for reflection may be concern is that with this idea of editing uh, comes a sense of perfect correction. Mm-hmm. In fact, when you talk to some of the leading scientists, uh, they use metaphors like, you know, this is like using MS Word that, you know, you have, you run a spell check, but you correct things because you already have a sense what the correct spelling is. Right. You know, we know 
that dictionaries change, that various languages have recodified themselves to remove things that they consider extraneous, like even the August Académie Française, you know, does occasionally say things like, this circumflex shall no longer be needed, right? <laughs> so, so the question of what perfect spelling is even changes. And if we look at how Shakespeare spelled words, including his own very famous name, it was far less standardized than we in our generation who believe that there's a single correct way of writing Shakespeare. So um, the editing metaphor presumes that we know what perfection is at the end, mm. and then control is geared toward producing that image of the perfection. Mm. That is fascinating. And again, it's another uh, another thread through the book is is books or codes. Uh, you know, the language that you're talking about, the linguistic acts that we that we sort of um, uh, kind of bring to life in some sense by applying these linguistic techniques, even as as we um, use them in splicing genes and and things of that nature. I think the point that I might have been trying to get to, or that seems like we we might be we might be close to, is this sort of flattening of these technologies as well. I think it was beautiful to bring in the MS word, you know, the, the flat, the flat act of the technological act, right, is, is I can do this one thing with my technology that is like this other thing. And the two things, even though they're absolutely very, very different, look very much the same and, and sort of use the same process and you do the same thing in making those corrections. Yeah, absolutely. One thing that bothers me is how seductive that mm. transition is. This is what I was saying a little bit with the metaphor of the code before as well, that you take words out of everyday practice, or in the case of MS Word, another technology, and you say this is like that. Mm -hmm. um, you're taking an entire stream of associations from one domain into another, and, and it happens so easily that we don't even think twice about it. Right. You know, we correct things with word. Of course, everybody does it and, and we do it all the time. Um, but, uh, you know, so why not do it with biology in the same sense? Ah, so the, the key question, right? Why not do it? Right. Exactly. <laughs> right. Why not? Because it suddenly becomes permissible as well as possible. It's time for a break. This is Race for the Prize, again off the 1999 album The Soft Bulletin from The Flaming Lips. Scientists are people too, don't you know? Stay with us for more on how science has set the terms for how we describe and value life, brooking no other points of view.
Welcome back to Interchange. Sheila Jasanoff is my guest. Her most recent book is Polities, Can Science Make Sense of Life? A first response might be, well, what do you mean by life, or sense, or science? Surely we'd benefit from many points of view on the questions, what is life, and what is life for? But since 1980, life seems to be foremost for patent and profit. You know, uh, throughout you, you you make reference to multiple, um, um, I guess, public and uh, private acts of trying to uh, wrest control out of these uh, for these processes, right? So, um, you know, one of the key, uh, I guess, in in chapter one, you point to the 1980 uh, by Dole Act and um, and how that um, sort of paved the way for the way. Um, I guess universities, small businesses, nonprofits, et cetera, can pursue ownership um, in preference to government, I guess, government funding, perhaps. So uh, can you can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, the Biden Act of 1980, um, and if we have time, I'd like to point out that uh, it was one of two very important things that happened to biotechnology in 1980 sure. uh, mm-hmm. that were unrelated to one another. The other one was the Diamond versus Chakrabarty decision mm-hmm. that allowed for the patenting of uh, life forms at all. But the Bidole Act was premised on something that sounds like the heartland of democracy. We're paying for science with taxpayer dollars. We don't want scientists to just sit on their glorious discoveries and get credit out of publishing them in journals and eventually get prizes and awards if they were very, very clever. Rather, we want them to ensure the transmission into the public good, which is why we're funding their work in the first place. So how is that going to happen? Well, of course, basic science needs to get into discovery, invention, and eventually commercialization industry. And the first step toward that is the patent, you know, getting an intellectual property right, which circulates that discovery, puts it in the public domain, allows other people to make use of the discovery if they have the ingenuity to do that. And moreover, it ensures some reward to the person who sought the intellectual property in the first place. So so there's a quid pro quo. Um, But it changed the relationship between basic researchers and universities and the kind of motivation that they brought to it. So in 1980, uh, there were not spin-off companies in the way that there are now. Now, if you look at university communities like my own in Cambridge, Mass, the universities are circled around with um, various forms of industrial enterprise. And Silicon Valley, of course, is the archetype of uh, that very phenomenon that people are trying to emulate now all over the world. But it means that the scientists inside the university are no longer driven by curiosity alone. They're driven by curiosity plus. And the plus relates to commercial benefits. Um, and, you know, one of the first things that happened with the CRISPR technology, the, the gene editing technology, is um, primacy battles between, in this country, in the United States, between the University of California at Berkeley and the Broad Institute, which is a joint institute between MIT and Harvard. And that has played along ping pong-like uh, about, you know, which 
piece of the technology is going to be claimed by whom. And then, of course, Europeans want a share of that pie as well. It's just a very different world from saying, as Schrodinger was wanting to say, we have discovered the code script and now we are all the wiser for it. It's we are all the wiser, but some of us are richer. <laughs> right. Well, this was, as you say, uh, 1980. So this is right on the right in the the wheelhouse of everything that uh, generally uh, people on the left side of the spectrum like to attribute to this particular burgeoning of the 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 neoliberal economy. Right. And this is a, a bipartisan bill, I think. Right. But I think by at the time uh, was a, a Democrat and Dole a Republican. Um, I don't know what an Indiana Democrat is, but. Um, <laughs> You know, you can see that this is this has political uh, commercialization processes, you know, written all, all over it. This commercialization point and the very important point you raise about it being a bipartisan thing in the United States. I mean, that is absolutely a very important point to note. Um, one of the things that uh, one might note about American agricultural policy, where um, genetic mod- modification, GMOs, entered into the picture uh, much earlier than the current discussion about editing human genomes. Um, that is an area where there's been bipartisan agreement all along. Agricultural policy in America is not something that the Democrats and the Republicans fight over. And the Democrats have been every bit as ardent supporters of GMOs as Republicans have. And, and it's felt to be one of these very American territories where, where the United States is ahead in the global market and, um, and has every intention of, of remaining so. So that notion of American industrial policy on the whole is one that, um, is shared. It's a space of national pride and nationalism. Hmm. Uh, do you want to go ahead and talk about the Chakrabarti decision now? Oh, sure. Um, so I think it's, in a way, coincidental that it happened to be in the same year. But it, uh, the Chakrabarti decision comes out of a uh, another sort of slightly odd history. Uh, and the history is that this biologist, Chakrabarti, Ananda Chakrabarti, happened to be working at General Electric, which is normally concerned with physics-type activities. So you can see it as a strange, distant echo of um, Schrodinger setting uh, up his own code script for what biologists would end up doing. Um, Chakrabarti himself believes that um, GE uh, leapt to patent his organism because that was the company's ethos. And they didn't stop to think whether it was life or not life. To them, it didn't matter. If an invention was being made in their company, they would go out and seek a patent. So if he had been doing that research instead in a university, I do wonder if the same trajectory would have come about. Somebody would have done it sooner or later because it was just a a horizon of invention that was emerging and somebody would have had the idea. But it's a little bit interesting that it came out of a discovery that was not in a university, but in industry. So Genentech had already been formed as one of the first uh, spin-off companies coming out of academic research. And they filed a friend of the court, an amicus brief before the Supreme Court, which carried a lot of weight with the court. Um, the idea that courts should not be in the business of staving off innovation, that their role in interpreting the ancient American Patent Act written at the time of Thomas Jefferson is that innovation should always be given free space 
And the court drew an interesting boundary. Um, all the negative arguments that were advanced by the uh, um, anti-biotechnology activist Jeremy Rifkin and his uh, organization, those the court set aside as being political arguments and hence something that was were not appropriate for courts to take up. Uh, Congress should respond to those sorts of concerns about, um, um, you know, does this mean the instrumentalizing of life, for instance, and what about risks and so forth. Their job as the high court was simply to interpret that law, and they interpreted it in the broadest terms possible and thereby essentially handed the nascent biotech industry um, a guaranteed property right in the products that they were producing. Um, the important word there is product. So it's not just a right in the process by which you get something, but in the thing that you produce using that process. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. My guest is Harvard Kennedy School Professor of Science and Technology Studies, Sheila Jasanoff, whose new book, Can Science Make Sense of Life? asks, how far should the capacity to manipulate what life is at the molecular level authorize science to define what life is for? Jasanoff looks at flashpoints in law, politics, ethics, and culture to argue that science's promises of perfectibility have gone too far. They lifted up the sun. And what is it that uh, I don't, um, off the top of my head, I can't remember what was the, the process that Chakrabarty discovered or invented? Yeah, so Chakrabarty was not actually doing uh, recombinant DNA. I mean, he was not transferring bits of DNA from one organism to another. He was using organisms to make a new one. Uh, so he was using um, multiple bacteria to produce a new bacterial strain uh, that would be capable of um, eating, was the metaphor, eating oil and thereby reducing oil pollution. Mm. So the idea was that there would be this bacterial spray that you could bring to bear on um, water-based marine pollution uh, and thereby break up the, the slick of pollutants uh, and make it more digestible. In effect, the bacteria would be doing the digesting for you. Mm -hmm. A lot of these issues are interesting because they're constantly uh, confronting legal standards or the ways in which the law has to approach these things. It's a big part of the book also, how the law uh, sort of stands aside or stood aside anyway uh, and continues to for for science, for for the authority of science to actually regulate itself. I think the um, the intersection between legal authority and scientific authority is one of these great underexplored domains in academia. Um, it's one that I myself fell into a little bit by accident because I was trained as a lawyer. I was never interested in traditional corporate law practice and therefore went into environmental law. It was in the very earliest years of environmental law, and that in turn led me to thinking for the rest of my working life about the connections between scientific knowledge on the one hand and normatively what we do with the law on the other hand. If you're used to legal culture, I think anywhere in North America, but certainly in the U.S., um, you recognize one kind of lawyer's joke, which is we went into law school because we couldn't do math. And there's almost a, a point of pride that lawyers are people who don't understand science and don't care about it. But that means that they're drawing a kind of normative boundary. They're saying that we can make rules about things without knowing much about what the things are, or how they operate. And we therefore can decide the most complicated 
technical issues on the basis of the right reading of the law. So I think that uh, it's almost a corollary of that, that uh, claims that science is making are given a kind of free pass without asking, well, is there something normative associated with that technical claim? Uh, Are there value assumptions embedded there? So if science says, you know, we have discovered a secret that is going to allow us to produce this commercial venture, uh, law may look and see whether there are competitors in that spot and, you know, someone is asserting, oh, well, this is not novel or whatever. Law is not going to say anything about the shoulds and oughts that may be incorporated into the kind of move that science is making. So, you know, is it okay to patent life or not? will get translated back into a question like, was it in the terms of the wording that we can allow this? And then usually law takes a kind of expansive reading that is uh, deferential to science. And in the book, I try to illustrate specific moments where American law has confronted claims made on on behalf of biotechnology and genetic engineering, and on the whole has stayed deferential. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, uh, talk a little bit about the idea of the law lag. This is, I I guess, I think this is from chapter three. Uh, You you talk about, again, this is part of what you're just now talking about, this idea that, that the law has to catch up to the progressive science. Yes, the law lag is one of my bugbears as an academic, because um, what is it saying? It's saying that um, the law uh, is never in the right place at the right time, that science has charted new territory, and then somehow it's up to the law to catch up to the meaning of that territory and to inscribe rules. But in the very idea of a lag is some kind of notion of linearity. I mean, that as someone has already charted the way, which means that law isn't just following, it's following along a particular track. And the track is to ratify certain kinds of things. So science has disclosed that there are these new privacy problems. It's up to the law to write new code to deal with the privacy problem. Um, And one doesn't necessarily ask in the process, uh, what are we doing with our ideas of um, human integrity in sort of redefining this as a privacy problem in the first place, as opposed to, say, an intrusion on sacral space or Mm. whatever? There there could be different ways of framing what Mm -hmm. is at stake in that issue. You're, You're already telling the law that the world is in a certain position, and the law has to play catch up. So to, to me, it's a metaphor that constrains the legal imagination. Mm. And I think that that's, you know, not a helpful thing, because to me, trained as a lawyer, one of the great virtues of the law is that it liberates the human imagination to think about what justice is or ought to be. And then, I mean, if one really wants to think of law lags, we can think about what our expectations of justice in the world are and whether the law is up to dealing with those things or not. And Mm -hmm. at salient Mm -hmm. moments in in U.S. history, we have discovered that our imaginations of the human were so stunted that we were not allowing half of them to vote Mm -hmm. and that we were creating spaces in which we decided that the phenotype of a human being was more important to the education they were receiving than the idea of 
foundational equality among humans, mm. regardless of what they look like. I mean, so obviously mm. I'm talking about women's suffrage and I'm talking about the Brown versus Board of Education mm-hmm. decision in the 50s. So, you know, I think that the glory of the law comes from reimagining human existence in ways that are more progressive, always keeping in mind that this idea of progressiveness itself is historical and contingent and our minds change. Right. And I think the idea that science and technology are going to take primacy in imagining the world for us and then lead law to say, well, okay, uh, that leads us to the heart of one of the debates that I think is um, at the center of people's thinking about genome editing. So, you know, we have this technique, it's like MS Word, we can go in and tinker with the genes and make people okay, or maybe even better along certain dimensions. One that's constantly talked about for some reason is blue eyes. And so people are continually, even in the moral philosophy world, debating whether it's okay to engineer your child to have blue eyes or not. Another is greater intelligence. Um, And it's already fallen into the tried and true binary between therapy and enhancement, as opposed to the more complicated question about design. I mean, that is, to what extent is design appropriate? And I think it's a different debate. I mean, I think saying, well, is a therapy or enhancement already presumes that, that whatever we call therapy is fine. And then people talk about, well, will blue eyes one day come to be seen as such a necess- necessary part of the human accoutrement that we will want to engineer blue eyes into everybody? Mm-hmm. It's time for another break. This is The Spark That Bled, another from the Flaming Lips. More with Sheila Jasanoff on the way the biological sciences have seized the authority to describe life and set the rules for what should be experimentally permissible. But is science capable of morality? Stay with us. I accidentally touched my hand And noticed that I Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. For our final segment, Sheila Jasanoff discusses French post-impressionist Paul Gauguin's 1897 painting, Where Do We Come From? What Are We? Where Are We Going? As an example of other ways to understand what life is for and how it fuses art and religion as modes of discourse and knowledge.
interesting thing throughout is that you know you discuss science uh, leading the way in a sense or trying to have the authority or asserting authority for how things ought to be um, uh, without understanding or without recourse to many other ways of thinking about how things ought to be, how things should be, etc. So use the word sacral there uh, a minute ago and it's it's not so present in the book. It's hinted at here and there just that there are, there need to be other ways to think about things or they need to be thought about in concert. Um, a lot of these um, uh, sort of historic uh, conferences about new science, you, you talk about the 1975 Asilomar conference on recombinant <laughs> DNA um, is one example of a conference that sort of lacks you know, lacked external voices for understanding this particular science. And that's a big issue throughout is, is how there aren't other voices in, in this conversation. Uh, again, thank you for picking up on, on the word sacral. Um, I do think uh, that I, as a secular person who believes in uh, some domain of imagination that I would call spiritual, uh, have a little bit of trouble writing about this without falling into the orthodoxies of religion. Mm -hmm. But I think that the notion of sacrality is woven through the book in possibly a more subtle way. I think the two bookends, the Gauguin painting that I talk about and the conclusion, which I'll come to in a second, uh, are part of my personal ways of flagging a theme that I think is recurrent in other parts of the book as well. Mm -hmm. So the Gauguin painting, which happens to hang here in our local Boston Museum of Fine Arts, um, asks the ultimate uh, questions about what is life for. Uh, and one of the things I do in the book, again, maybe in, a, in an overly understated way, uh, is uh, to show that biologists are asking those very same questions. Where do we come from? Who are we? Where are we going? And there are even points like when um, geneticists are taste tracing the deep history of human migration and human kinds, where literally those same questions are being asked. But Gauguin was not out to give a biological answer. He was painting, so it was an artistic answer. And yet his own questions came from his Catholic upbringing. So there's a theological grounding to that Tahitian painting that, you know, in a way of sort of full reading of that text, the painting, uh, forces you to think about. And I mentioned the fact that the, the upper left-hand corner has a kind of turned over section that is dull gold, you know, a sort of um, color of an icon. And, and the whole painting in that sense, you know, conveys a kind of sense of spirituality. So I take the painting as a metaphor and by showing that scientists are asking the same questions, but they're not responding in the same ways. Uh, you know, I present as a subtext in the book uh, that there is this interplay, that we're making a choice. In effect, by shifting into the scientific register, we are at risk of depreciating this other register. And what is that register after all? And one of the things I would like to say is that that register is already well populated. It's claimed by art, it's claimed by poetry, it's claimed by um, novellas like Borges' story about the library, uh, and it's claimed by song. And so I concluded the book with um, a very different, um, but to me, you know, very familiar culture, that of uh, Hinduism and India, but 
reform Hinduism in a sense, and, you know, sort of thinking about how the idea of perfectibility plays out in a culture that thinks that the ultimate end of the human is uh, through fire and through a kind of purification of materiality that has nothing to do with engineering blue eyes into it, but a kind of, um, you know, union with the infinite in some sense. And that infinite can be historical, or it can be cultural, or it can be humanism understood however you want to understand it. But absolutely, is not a software of life that gets into tinkering with genes. Right, right. Well, it's uh, it's. I, I I wasn't trying to say it wasn't uh, something that you make a point of. I think it is subtle in the sense that you are critiquing biology throughout, or critiquing science, critiquing the idea of authority from this one particular vantage point. This is politics and money and power, which differ at least at this point in time from these other perspectives. You know, we talk about Gauguin. Uh, most people are going to ask, you know, what did that cost? You know, what did that painting sell for? <laughs> right. So you know the. The issues are, are, are certainly uh, ones that have been uh, constant throughout human history, uh, recorded history at least, right? The idea that we, we try to figure out what it is we are, who we are, what we do here, why we're here, why we think at all, why we have to worry about life and death. If we were animals, perhaps we would think less about these issues. Uh, this is one of our key problems, you know, defining self interject one thing yeah feel free my husband was showing me a little video of a chimp using uh, a cell phone i think to look at uh, videos of the chimp and it was striking the way that uh, this chimp was manipulating the the uh, screen mm. and you know moving backward and forward and seeming to be really quite interested and you may know that there's a psychological test of subjectivity and, you know, do animals recognize themselves mm -hmm. as humans recognize themselves? And it's called the red dot test. And if you put a red dot on the animal, does the animal see it as itself or not? Um, so I think that, that um, current trends in, in biology uh, are stressing, if anything, the continuity between other species and us. Um, so it's interesting that the, that the movements in different sectors of biology, like molecular biology, evolutionary biology, synthetic biology, you know, I mean, there are all these different areas. It's not obvious to me that the normative understandings of life are the same across all of these domains at all. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. My guest is Harvard Kennedy School Professor of Science and Technology Studies, Sheila Jasanoff, whose new book, Can Science Make Sense of Life?, asks, how far should the capacity to manipulate what life is at the molecular level authorize science to define what life is for? Jasanoff looks at flashpoints in law, politics, ethics, and culture to argue that science's promises of perfectibility have gone too far. They lifted up the sun well, it, it is it, it is one in which we constantly uh, have to ask these questions. I think again, the power of the book is that it it shows that there are very specific and narrow questions. Even as the search for life seems enormous, the scientific questions and pursuit seems really narrow in its in its in the in the way it goes about it. It's a descriptively correct thing to say that that um, the search. Uh, the searches that science undertakes are narrow, and people will justify it on 
very legitimate grounds that also give science its power to be credible. That is, if you ask questions that are too fuzzy, I mean, this, mm-hmm. if you're an instructor, as I am, and are trying to teach a graduate student, one of the questions, one of the tricks of the trade you teach that student is how to ask an answerable question. And answerable questions have to be ones that, you know, in Thomas Kuhn's term, terms may be paradigmatic or whatever, but they require a narrowing of the lens. You can't ask about the entire universe at the same time. But I want to say that the, that to call something narrow implies a verb as well, that there was a narrowing, mm-hmm. a process by which we get to a particular vantage point. And one of the things I think I try to be clear on throughout the book is that I am not denigrating the power of science, the value of science, the importance of critical inquiry, of curiosity, of particular endpoints that science is seeking. What I am cautioning about is that we give moral primacy to our epistemic desires, that what we want to know through science should not become the only things we want to know, first of all, I mean, never the only, and that when it's something as complex and fundamental as life itself, then the colonizing of the imagination with one way of looking uh, is dangerous and detrimental. Mm. And, you know, in the we talk about some of the horrors perpetrated by technology and humans wielding techno- technology in the mid-century. But what people have written about is the same sort of narrowing of the human imagination so that we wrote certain forms of life and ways of being as uh, not belonging, mm. you know, in the roster of a valuable human life. So I am, I think, a pretty unashamed humanist mm. in that I want that sensibility not to die out. Um, but how do you do that? You're studying science, I am, uh, and of course, have respect for it. I'm raised in a scientific culture and a technological culture. So how does one rediscover critique in a way that does not in any way depreciate the value of scientific activity? I mean, I would you know, go to the wall to fight for uh, dollars for research for basic science. At the same time, I think I can be a friendly opponent when it comes to saying something about the place that science ought to occupy in the sum total of human imagination and human creativity. Mm. Well, there is a a sense, um, and maybe it's a a sense of service, you know, the idea that we do have to have multiple voices talk about, again, what you say before, uh, what life is for, how we should do things. These these require a kind of consensus. Maybe that's the wrong word. These days, consensus may be the wrong word. But the idea that we need to have the, you know, the culture the society, the the people that are being uh, governed by science in, in many ways ought to have a voice in it. It's a big part of your work is trying to understand how this undermines democratic processes as well. Uh, you, you mentioned, um, uh, the, I think, um, I don't think you use the term, but I think you were describing the kind of civic epistemologies that, that we kind of have to deal with or how science seeks to train us in these particular ways, these particular ways of thinking also. Um, there's one example you you give in the book, I think it's Maxine Singer, uh, who's a molecular biologist and one of the, uh, I guess, uh, founders or um, uh, one of the people involved in the in the 1975 conference on recombinant DNA, who said in a uh, Yale Law Journal review that that there ought to be literacy tests for journalists, you know, so they can write about science the right way, uh, so they can understand it, etc. But you make the point that 
that scientists aren't required to, you know, be humanists. They're not required to read literature. They're not required to be philosophers or to understand how, you know, how other ways might be necessary to thinking about these processes. Yes, well, Maxine Singer's idea was that not just journalists, but also lawyers should be made scientifically literate. And the funny thing is that that idea has not gone away. I mean, periodically, lawyers themselves are adept at taking up that argument and talking about a required science course um, for lawyers. I mean, my view is that it should be a science studies or a science and society course for lawyers so that they understand far better what the nature of the fit is and not go away with some 20 questions idea that if they can answer these 20 questions, they are now scientifically literate. I and mean, they're not going to be scientifically literate. You have to be embedded in scientific practice to really understand what goes on in that world. And, you know, you need a lot of training, not just a you know, simplified basic course of one sort or of one sort or another. But to some degree, there's also value in not having that literacy, not being embedded in the same mindset as the people that you're in conversation with. Um, but I do want to point out that how we understand facts in the public world uh, is, to a large extent, a reflex of the ways we've constructed our governments as well. I mean, so America. American government is based to a huge extent on the legal model, that is, we favor law training as a way of doing governance. If you look at the current slate of Democratic candidates, for instance, here in the year 2019, a goodly number of them were trained in law, a couple of them specifically as prosecutors. Um, it's a particular forensic mindset that we have toward the development of facts. If you look at many other countries, they have much more of a collaborative, communitarian sense of how you develop facts. Um, so I think civic epistemologies really matter. And if we're talking about a global deliberation, forget the consensus point, even just the deliberation, uh, how should we be talking about the human genome? I think it's important to have these different cultures of knowledge talking to each other, because otherwise there's too much of a danger that one is going to end up colonizing the world just because it seems to have the scientific edge or the technological edge at a given moment. And the meaning of life is a multiplex engagement. It's not something that can be done through one path. And if we're serious, if we're serious about multiculturalism and pluralism and diversity in the world, including about something so fundamental as what is a human being, where are we going, what are we doing here at all, uh, then we have to be extremely careful to reposition that discourse um, in its richness, in its variety. That's our show. We'll close with Spoonful Ways of Time. Our final selection from the Great Flaming Lips album, The Soft Bulletin. They lifted up the sun. The limits now were none. And though they were sad, they rescued everyone. They lifted up the sun. A spoonful weighs a ton. Thanks to Sheila Jasanoff for joining us to discuss her work and her new book from Polity, Can Science Make Sense of Life? Thanks for listening. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Wes Martin is executive producer. Stay tuned for The Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. The limits now are